This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio archives. Here are two from the vaults, scientist James McClintock and biographer Will Haygood. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got marine biologist James McClintock on the line. His new book is A Naturalist Goes Fishing, Casting in Fragile Waters from the Gulf of Mexico to New Zealand's South Island. James, I'm so glad you could join us. It's my pleasure. So tell us a little bit about this book. Why did you decide to combine writing about ecology with tales from your lifetime of recreational fishing? Well, um, as a scientist who's worked for 30 years conducting research, particularly in remote locations like Antarctica, um, one of my goals now is to take what I've learned in ecology um, and educate the general public about those topics and particularly timely environmental issues. And it turns out that uh, a dear old love of mine, English, which I actually started out majoring in back at college many years ago before I discovered marine biology, um, sort of circled around in my life, and I decided that I would go back to that interest and uh, write for the general public, combining stories of my life as a scientist, or in this case, my fishing adventures uh, around the world with um, nature, natural history, and environmental conservation. So, so tell us a little bit about your, your fishing adventures. Yeah, um, my fishing adventures come to me um, primarily fortuitously. Um, I'm not somebody who's of enough wealth to fly around the world for purposes of fishing, Mm -hmm. but I do a lot of teaching where I take students abroad uh, to teach in the Bahamas and Galapagos and Costa Rica. Um, I take my research trips to Antarctica, funded by the National Science Foundation, and sabbaticals in places far like France and New Zealand. And when these things happen, I I love to fish. And so over the years, I've garnered together a fair number of fishing adventures. And that's what you read about in the book is, you know, that day that I caught the big yellowfin tuna off the Gulf of Mexico or my trips out to the Chandler Islands for spotted uh, trout and redfish. Um, and that's, that's really how these stories came about was sort of my opportunities to fish when I'm on location for other purposes. Uh, it sounds great. I, and now I just have to ask, it sounds like you do a lot of uh, cast fishing. Do you also do uh, uh, fly rod or is it mostly casting? Absolutely. Um, I do a lot of cast fishing, and I've done a fair amount of fly fishing as well. Right. Um, I do talk about fly fishing in the book, particularly when I was living uh, in New Zealand. Mm. So you teach at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and, and yeah. carried out uh, marine biology research. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, and then I want to then we'll talk a little bit how you put it together in the book. Yeah, um, my career here has spanned a period of about 30 years now, and my area of expertise is really in polar marine biology, and in particular Antarctica, which, uh, as you know, is way south, the true south, not the Alabama south. And I've been working down there looking at uh, animals that produce toxic chemicals and how they use them to protect themselves and whether they can be developed into drugs to fight human disease like cancer and AIDS and cystic fibrosis and different things. And in the last 15 years, my program in Antarctica has moved to the Antarctic Peninsula where climate change is very dramatic. And this is something that has really captured my attention. And uh, I've been focusing on that to a great extent in my research here at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. Um, And so that's sort of what I'm doing here at UAB. I'm also a professor that teaches courses, um, as well as direct a number of graduate students. 
So how um, how did you decide to, I guess, start fishing while you were traveling around teaching? I mean, is it just the sort of thing where, you know, there you were looking out over the, the Gulf of Mexico or in the Bahamas thinking, you know, what I really want is a fishing rod in my hand right now? Right. Well, I team teach the course with Ken Marion, who's a dear friend and my fishing buddy. And so that really had a lot to do with it. We would go someplace and say, you know, we've really got to figure out how to catch a fish here in the Bahamas. We don't really have the resources or the time to do serious bone fishing where we rent a guide and we go out for the day with our fly rods. But let's try throwing a hot dog into the bay here and see what happens. (laughs) And lo and behold, we catch a bonefish right as a yacht is pulling in with a guy who gets off, uh, who's been bonefishing all day, very frustrated, having not caught a bonefish, and finding us reeling in, you know, this nice five-pound bonefish and asking us, what you catch it on? And we told him a hot dog, and there was just sort of stunned silence. <laughs> and he walked away very disgusted. And So we take, you know, advantage of where we are to do these things. Um, one time we were in Costa Rica teaching tropical uh, rainforest ecology there, and we're staying at the Atlantic Coast at a lodge with our students. And we had no idea that one of the world expert tarpon guides happened to use our lodge as his base. And lo and behold, he didn't have any famous movie stars booked that day and he took us out for a half a day and you know we both caught 135 pound tarpon wow. to get them up to the boat and get a picture you know it was this kind of sort of opportunistic fishing that uh, that really gave provided the narrative for the book so um with the book is this sort of the the spoonful of sugar that makes the medicine go down as you, you sort of get people in with the idea of of fun fishing stories and then you hit them with the ecological realities um, this is, I, I approach my uh, writing in terms of the environment with a glass half full. Um, and so I do discuss the environmental issues that are, are pressing on our fisheries, um, as well as things like climate change and ocean assist, acidification. Uh, but I also offer in the book um, hope um, for the future. I give examples of sustainable fisheries. I talk about the kinds of uh, things that are happening, the, sort of this mindset change you're seeing now. I think in a generation we've seen uh, people that fish go from sort of the trophy or into the you know kettle sort of approach to fishing everything must be eaten or or essentially put on the wall versus you know this catch and release ethic that has grown fairly strong now and uh, is found with many different types of sport fish so I, I you know it isn't really a gloom and doom kind of approach to um, the environment and how it's affecting fisheries it's more um, let's face the reality but let's also see what we can do and what's being done so you 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 took a fishing trip uh, to the Chandelure Islands. I think I don't mm-hmm. know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is uh, a chain of islands uninhabited for about you know, I guess it's about thirty miles off the Louisiana coast. That's correct. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit what was the fishing like there, but also ecologically, what what did you discover? Well, this is an absolutely spectacular. Um, wildlife refuge. You actually get there from Biloxi, Mississippi, but you're correct. They're located within the state of Louisiana, about 30 miles offshore. They're very um, low-lying islands, covered in salt marshes. Uh, There's seagrass beds that surround them. And we have this tradition now for many years of, we call them the Chandelier Dozen. Uh, We go out on a large boat um, that we live on, and then there's small skiffs that are launched for fishing. So we fish in pairs, and we're fishing for speckled trout and redfish uh, amidst these absolutely gorgeous islands. The wildlife is spectacular with uh, frigate birds circling overhead, and one of the islands has so many brown pelicans on it, you know, they almost push each other into the water. Um, And all this is made all the more astounding because as an ecologist, I know that things like brown pelicans were threatened not Mm -hmm. that many years ago um, when we had the DDT issues going on, etc. So what I bring to bear about the chandeliers is they're very ephemeral, and they're very sensitive to change. They're very sensitive to to, uh, sea level rise, for example. 
Um, and then also um, the uh, the Hurricane Katrina scenario, where they, the islands were literally decimated by Hurricane Katrina. Some of the islands disappeared hmm. uh, from the map, and one of the largest islands was cut several places. Some of them lost 30, 40, 50 percent of their mass. So I've seen this change over the years and how uh, vulnerable they are, and yet how important they are because they protect the coastline of Louisiana, which is so susceptible, as we all know, uh, to hurricanes. And they're not being replenished like they used to be when the Mississippi River brought sediments down and these sediments found their way out to, to rebuild these islands. So it's it's in that sort of uh, scenario that we find ourselves fishing. That's fascinating. And um, we also mentioned that uh, you, as you mentioned, uh, you were fishing for yellowfin tuna in the Gulf of Mexico, but mm-hmm. you were also um, looking at the, the results of the Deepwater Horizon blowout. Yeah, that turned out to be very interesting because um, we were invited to go yellowfin uh, tuna fishing. I'd never done this before, and uh, just catching the fish was amazing because they use a method called chunking, where you take chunks of uh, fish and you drop them in the water by hand, and you sit there and watch the tuna come up from the deep, uh, and then you hide the hook in one of the chunks, and a tuna will take it, and, and you can catch blackfin and yellowfin tuna. The, the bluefin tuna, of course, are endangered and protected, right. but the yellowfins and the blackfins are very, very abundant, um, and it was a fantastic experience. Um, un, unbeknownst to my, myself, just a few months after this tuna fishing trip, in the same area where we were catching our tuna uh, is where the Deep Horizon rig uh, exploded on April 20th, 2010. And so that provided a very nice uh, segue for me to talk about how that oil spill was thought to have influenced uh, the possible uh, tuna larvae themselves, the young fish, uh, and then that oil worked into the Chandelier Islands, and that was one of the first impact zones. And so we were able to evaluate how that fishery and how those coastal animals that were impacted uh, are doing. And, and the good news is that it looks like um, they're doing pretty well. We still don't know a lot about what happened to all the oil that went deep, um, but we know that at least among the marsh systems, there was some of effect in the chandeliers for about a year, and that has recovered fairly well, and it's thought that the tuna are doing as, uh, fairly well as well. So good news in the end. And thus your glass half full uh, look at it, so so a little bit of optimism there. A little bit of optimism there. <laughs> yeah, it's different than uh, what happened up in Alaska, I think, in the sense that the water's warmer. I think there's more microbial breakdown of the oil. Right. The oil is a very uh, high-quality oil. In other words, it tends to vaporize to a large extent. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't some problems. We're still getting tarballs coming up on the beaches of Alabama and Florida and Louisiana and Mississippi. Right. And those are coming from somewhere. I, I was going to say, you sound like the the most cheerful climate change discusser I have ever <laughs> heard. <laughs> well, um, I don't know. It's all cheer. Uh, having been working in Antarctica where I've seen entire communities change, uh, penguin populations crash, glaciers recede. Um, it's it's quite stunning. And it, I, I feel it's a responsibility that I, I really bear to make people aware that this is really happening and happening over periods of decades instead of millennia. And that, you know, while we certainly care about Antarctic ecosystems and the potential they bear for carrying disease, um, it's more of a canary in the the coal mine. Um, what, what I'm seeing happen there is going to manifest itself, and in, in some ways already is, uh, in the more temperate and tropical regions of our planet. So I'm, I do a lot of lecturing on climate change to uh, various groups around the country. I will admit, the, 10 years ago, I spoke primarily to Audubon and Sierra Club and environmental groups, um, but I'm speaking broadly now to rotary groups um, who tend to be leaders of communities, fairly conservative. And it's promising to me that people now are listening. They're realizing there are economic impacts. They're realizing that there are ways to move ahead with this and deal with it uh, and maybe not you know, have as much of a negative impact on society as it's being made out to be. How do you find those speaking gigs? Do they come and find you? Uh, yes. Um, 
typically uh, I'll get contacted by a university uh, or a, a civic group or something, and they'll say, you know, we read your book, Lost Antarctica. Uh, we would love for you to come speak about your book. Uh, we'll, we'll have a big general public lecture. I just got back from the University of Texas at San Antonio, and they had 250 people. There weren't even enough seats in the auditorium that wow. came to the evening lecture to hear me speak. And that's followed by a book signing. And then they'll be they'll bring in their uh, the donors of the campus to meet me and have a drink and, and you know so it's it's really neat. And then I do roundtable discussions with the students while I'm on campus and meet the faculty. And um, I'm off to. Uh, I'm going up to Boston shortly uh, to, to one of the colleges up there uh, to do this as well. And so it's, I, I think I probably give somewhere around 20 to 30 public lectures a year now uh, on my work in Antarctica, climate change, and now my book, A Naturalist Goes Fishing. And I'm delighted that my first real literary event is on my calendar. I've been invited to be a speaker at the Sun Valley Idaho Writers Conference next summer. Nice. So I'm very excited about that. And uh, so it's, it's interesting as a scientist to enter this world of, of this sort of literary world. And I, I have to give credit to a professor I work with here at UAB who's a professor of English who's worked very closely with me, sort of my first line editor with these two books. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with James McClintock, the author of A Naturalist Goes Fishing. He's just talking about uh, being a scientist in the literary world. Let's go back to that English major that you mentioned. How did all of that early training, you know, some some decades ago, kind of influence the writing of this book? Well, uh, it's certainly, I've always enjoyed writing, even as a, you know, a high school student. I think my best, my favorite teacher in high school was uh, a literature teacher, advanced literature. I'll never forget um, that this is somebody I really looked up to and always thought how neat it would be to write someday. Um, so I had a little bit of a base in English uh, going in, but you know, after doing an undergraduate degree in biology and a master's in zoology and a PhD in biology and it, it was it was too big of a step um, when my good friend E.O. Wilson nudged me and said, you know, you really should write for the general public. There's there's so few scientists who are doing this now, and perhaps we're we've never been in a time where it's more important mm-hmm. that scientists reach out. And I I thought to myself, you know, I really want to do this, and so I found this English professor Adam Vines on campus, and he he likes to fish. How's that? And also, he's a wonderful editor and a poet, and he agreed to work with me. So we've sort of formed this interdisciplinary team. We're now being invited around the country to speak, the two of us, about a scientist and somebody in the in the humanities working together to create um, these books that I'm writing. So that's been very exciting. You know, I was a medical journalist some years ago and mm-hmm. uh, looked into medical writing programs and was actually a little surprised that they were all about teaching writing to doctors rather than teaching medicine or at least sort of medical overview to to writers Mm -hmm. Um, because I just Mm -hmm. didn't know that there were that many doctors and scientists who were interested in writing so it's great that you that you found this I, I know I just love it and what I found about books is that they're a little bit like children you know you you work very hard and they come into the world and then they really sort of take on a life of their own um, like when I published my first book, Lost Antarctica, I had no idea that the director of E.O. Wilson's foundation, E.O. Wilson is a famous Harvard evolutionary biologist, would call me up and say, uh, we want to make a video, or I'm sorry, yeah, a little short video that's going into zoos and aquariums. And we want to use the prose from your book, literally. And uh, I said, well, I'd be honored to read this uh, for this video, and she said, or narrate it, and she said, no, 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 we'll have Harrison do it. 
And I said, who's Harrison? She said, well, Harrison Ford. You know, he's on this advisory board with you now. And I said, you're kidding. Um, you know, I met Bill Gates in Antarctica and spent a day with him, and he's uh, stayed in touch. He wrote a wonderful book jacket blurb for me on my first book. Um, Robert Redford has written a nice book jacket blurb uh, on this book, A Naturalist Goes Fishing. So these people that you meet, um, these boards that you're elected to, they all open doors. And so I've found, as a scientist, that's really rewarding to um, be able to amplify my voice to the general public public through these kinds of connections. Well, let's talk a little bit about that book you just mentioned, Lost Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that book come about, and um, what was your research like for that? Well, um, that was uh, the first book I ever wrote, and I thought to myself, what do I have up my sleeve that I could write a book about? Um, first of all, I needed to find a, a literary agent. Well, there's a catch-22. How does a scientist find a literary agent? Well, that was fortunate with uh, my connections with, again, with E.O. Wilson. He was able to facilitate that. And once I had a literary agent, um, you know, the the idea was, uh, what, do, what are you sitting on? What, what sort of conceptual thing could you do for a book that you may not realize you have in your head right now, but you do. And I thought to myself, well, you know, 30 years of adventures of going to and working in Antarctica is a book. Um, And I was able to construct it in a series of chapters that uh, addressed different environmental issues that are important in Antarctica, built around climate change and ocean acidification, and kind of related back to the different environments. There's there's a chapter on the tiny things that live in the plankton. Um, There's a chapter on the Adelie penguin, which is disappearing as this is one of the most poignant stories of impacts of climate change is that the Adelie penguins near Palmer Station, where I work on the Antarctic Peninsula, have gone from 15,000 breeding pairs down to 1,500 breeding mm. pairs wow. just in the past 30 years. And the, what's happening is they're being covered with very unseasonably late snowfall and the, the eggs are drowning. The sea ice is receding and the krill that uh, feed the penguins uh, that use the sea ice, the underside as a a place to feed, are are disappearing. Um, So you're seeing all these cascading effects going on. And I thought, goodness, there's certainly uh, a book in this. But again, um, my approach is there's a lot of storytelling in my book about adventures, the time that we were chased around under the water by a leopard seal, um, what it's like to live. One of my favorite parts is sort of the communication world. When I, you know, my first trip to Antarctica, I had to send a Western Union telegram to my fiance. And as a graduate student, it was $4 a word. So she only got five words over three months. <laughs> and, you know, by the time I think this last season when I went down, I was handed a cell phone, and I could climb up on the glacier behind the the U.S. station and look out over this spectacular landscape where the Andes that go underneath the Drake Passage and reemerge and form the spine of the Antarctic Peninsula were my backdrop, and sit there and talk to my wife like she's sitting next to me. Um, And all that, you know, technology that's happened over those three decades to make that possible, and how it's affected the life of Antarctica researchers who leave their families and, and live in isolation for months at a time to have those different kinds of communications available. So there's a lot that goes into the book about adventure, living in Antarctica, and then, of course, the narrative of the environmental change and climate. There was a recent New York Times uh, front page article just a couple of weeks ago that discussed the uh, the melting of, of Greenland. Um what are your thoughts on that? I, I don't know if you saw that. What are your thoughts on that in, in, in relation to your Antarctic uh, experience? It's funny that you bring that up because that article really took me uh, to another level. And I say that, for, again, sort of from a technological standpoint. I was I was at home with my coffee and paper in the morning, and I always have my iPad sitting there, and I picked it up. And I opened up the New York Times on the iPad and found that exact article that you're talking about. So I went to it, and as you as you scrolled down, it was very interesting. They, they suddenly you were almost like Google Earth. You were you were yeah. hovering over Greenland. Yeah. And did right. you get this too? I and, did. And as at first, I was a little confused about what I was supposed to do next. But I realized that as I scrolled down 
across the screen, what I was doing is I was working my way down to the surface of Greenland to one of these uh, rivers that has emerged that forms on the surface of Greenland on top of this, you know, the ice is hundreds and hundreds of feet thick. And these rivers then cascade down through these large holes, these chasms. Um, and they took you right down to the river and over to the edge to look down into one of these holes. And you almost got vertigo. And I was just thinking, what an incredible experience to work that imagery and that sense of you know, vision into the prose itself. Um, but anyway, the article itself is, is very compelling, of course, because what scientists have discovered about Greenland and the western part of Antarctica and the Antarctic Peninsula is these ice sheets are melting uh, faster than they realized they would. Not only that, but the undersides of glaciers um, are melting. In Antarctica, we have the Antarctic Circumpolar Current, the largest current on our planet. And it circles the continent clockwise, and it's warming quite rapidly. And so what's happening is the, the ice sheets that are bound to the land, these are about 100 feet thick, um, are melting on the undersides. And the glaciers that, that sort of spit out into the ocean are melting. And once the glaciers are gone and these ice sheets are gone, those are barriers that no longer exist. And that two miles of ice that sits on top of Antarctica is flowing towards the sea. You think of that as sort of like a river cascading very, very slowly. But when these barriers are gone, the rate of flow is accelerated three or four times. And what this means is that the projections of sea level rise for us are now much greater than before they realized or factored in Greenland and the western Antarctic. So we're looking, I think now the estimates are somewhere about a half a meter to a meter of sea level rise by century's end, which uh, if you live in Miami Beach is significant. Well, wow. I mean, I, I live in Brooklyn, but uh, even in the, the, I guess, 10 years that I've been back in New York uh, since I came from California, which has its whole own set of environmental disasters going on, I just make a policy of only living in neighborhoods with heights in the name um, uh -huh. because, you know, I don't want to be flooded out by a hurricane. And it just seems, you know, I, I look at, at Coney Island or Brighton Beach or whatever, and I think this isn't going to be here. Exactly. <laughs> it, well, it's really doing, alarming. That's wonderful. I, and the fact that you just said that to me is so stunning that you're, you know, you're, you're factoring in these things already in your decisions about where you live. Um, and I do get that now. And, you know, like I said, now I'm speaking regularly at Rotary meetings, and I'll have people come up and say I'm worried about my beach house. Well, you uh, should be. You know, and maybe I need to think about this because I'm having trouble getting insurance on my mm. beach house. Um, some people who have coastal property now are just choosing to take a chance and not have insurance. Um, so it's, yeah, it's changing very quickly. So so these books that I'm writing are, are my way of trying to get the word out very broadly from the perspective of an objective person who's rooted in science um, and has seen these things with their own eyes and uh, and command, or not command, but hopefully garner the confidence and respect that goes along with um, really taking the words to heart. Uh, one of the things I'm doing here in Alabama now is... Uh, you know, we have a very large conservative religious base here. And if you really look at, you know, some of the things that are that are dear to the hearts of of these fundamental religious types of people is, you know, this whole concept of stewardship. And, you know, there's not that big a, a difference between thinking of stewardship of our planet from the perspective of an environmental biologist or from the perspective of somebody who holds this as a... As a sort of a component of their faith. And so I'm holding a workshop um, next month called Spirituality and Climate Change, A Weekend in the Forest, um, to talk. I'll be directing it along with the, uh, the minister of an Episcopal church. Mm -hmm. And so this is an area that I think has a lot of potential. Um, the, the, you know, the numbers of people that are out there that could help work to solve some of these issues of climate change um, would be huge if you could uh, engender that type of uh, 
of concern and dedication. Well, you know, I was actually going to ask that as you were you. Well, I I was. How the conversation is 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 changing, especially as you as you've said, you've spoken with Rotary groups or other maybe more conservative groups, and now mm-hmm. you're talking about churches and and how you're weaving that into a, a, a conversation that that kind of jives with with uh, the the institutions thinking. I mean, are, are you finding that? People are uh, just, just say, for instance, the 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 idea of human involvement in global climate change versus something that is just happening that happens evolutionarily. I mean, it, yeah, I know, I know what you're getting at, Mark. It's uh, it's interesting. I used to get asked, is is the planet really warming? You know, there was some speculation that maybe that was, you know, that the data was weak or wasn't even true. Or um, I have not been asked about warming in front of very conservative audiences uh, for probably five years. Hmm. So now it seems that most people are pretty convinced that the Earth is warming. The question now is, do we have anything to do with it? Uh-huh. Or is this some sort of a natural cycle? Right. And so to explain that to my audiences, um, I sort of loosen them up with some humor. I say you can go online and uh, you can look up you know, all sorts of strong evidence for global warming. And I show them a picture. It's a wonderful um, YouTube picture uh, online somewhere that uh, shows a, cl- a clothesline with women's undergarments. And it's dated from the mid-1800s up to the present. And they get smaller and smaller and smaller. <laughs> and I say, see, this is what convinced me. And everybody just thinks that is a hoot. They just start laughing. And it doesn't matter what kind of the – what their feeling is about global warming. It's a wonderful moment. And then uh, – I say, well, okay, let's get serious. Let me show you what convinced me that we have something to do with it. And it's a wonderful segue because I'm talking about Antarctica typically at these talks, and suddenly we're looking at data from an ice core that goes down, you know, 10,000 meters through the Antarctic uh, plateau's ice. And in that ice core are little air bubbles that have a history of our atmosphere that goes back half a million years. And if you look at the carbon dioxide levels that greenhouse gas in those little air bubbles, you can see that it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that those levels of carbon dioxide, that greenhouse gas, got higher and higher and higher and higher, 25% higher than they've ever been over the last half a million years. And now that's been extended back to a million. And I said, this to me, folks, really made me realize that you know we're putting more and more of this greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Everybody knows that carbon dioxide is a potent greenhouse gas. And so I think we have a significant effect on what we're seeing happening. We're contributing to this. And I get very little um, rebuttal to that. People seem to go, oh, that kind of makes sense. Okay. And then people say, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, maybe that'll be the topic of your next book. Maybe. We've been talking with James McClintock, and you can find his book, A Naturalist Goes Fishing, in stores right now. James, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Don't go away. We've got another great interview from the archives coming up right after this break. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Will Haygood on the line. His new book is Showdown, Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court Nomination that Changed America. Will, I'm so glad you could join us. Thank you. Great to be here. So what initially drew you to Thurgood Marshall as the subject of a book? Uh, Well, um, as one who was born in the seminal year of 1954, which was when the Brown v. Board of Education school desegregation decision came down. Um, As you're growing older, uh, if you were born in that year, 1954, it always weighs on your mind. You heard about it in junior high, in high school, and in college. And uh, I sort of always knew that I wanted to uh, once I became a, uh, a serious nonfiction writer, that I always wanted to circle back to 1954 and find a way into the Thurgood Marshall story. But uh, I have this nonlinear hunger to 
tell nonfiction stories. So I needed sort of a hook, a sideways to go into the story. And, and since no one had written about his uh, very contentious 1967 confirmation hearings, I thought that that was my hook. And so that's what I focused on. It seems amazing that no one's ever written about it before because it, it was such a big deal. Yes, I, I think that um, uh, since Marshall was the first African-American to get onto the Supreme Court, that became the story in most of the uh, uh, nonfiction narratives. Uh, they wanted to focus on uh, his period on the Supreme Court since he had reached the legal mountaintop um, uh, what did he do once he had reached that mountaintop? Uh, and so I think that became a magnet for nonfiction writers. Uh, but uh, that wasn't my way into the Marshall story. Uh, uh, he was in the Senate hearing room for five days, stretched across 14 days, and um before Thurgood Marshall, the, the hearings for a Supreme Court nominee at the most had lasted one day. Mm. So his were five days stretched out over 14 days, and uh, and the most powerful people on the Senate Judiciary Committee were Southern segregationists who loathed Marshall because of the 1954 school decision that changed, in theory, the face of the South. So tell us uh, about this contentious time. Uh, what was it like right there during those 14 days? Uh, tell us some of the uh, the, the people who were uh, really arguing against Thurgood Marshall. Yes, well, uh, first of all, the uh, chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee was James Eastland of Mississippi. And he had uh, said many times before the hearing started that Thurgood Marshall was, to him, public enemy number one. Uh, and so this this senator is now the one setting the tone of the hearings. And the second most powerful person on that committee was Senator John McClellan of Arkansas. And where did the first uh, visceral reaction to the 1954 school case take place? In Little Rock, when the nine uh, black students tried to integrate Central High School. So the Arkansas senator saw that all, uh, um, all a spark from what Thurgood Marshall had done. And then you had Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina, who had run on the Dixie Crack ticket in 1948 um, for the White House. Uh, and so you had these powerful segregationists who were hell-bent on stopping the good marshal. Um, you had Lyndon Johnson, Southern-born president, who was... Um, uh, strongly intent on integrating the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, and you had anti-Vietnam protests going on in the streets. Uh, you had uh, many blacks upset uh, that the 1964 Civil Rights Bill wasn't being strongly enacted in the Deep South. Uh, and there's still... Uh, were problems with the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Um, there were still threats against people in the South. And now, all of a sudden, you have this surprise announcement from President Johnson that he's going to nominate Thurgood Marshall to the high court. Johnson did not let it leak out. Uh, there really was no opening on the court. Uh, Johnson had, uh, had uh, enticed uh, Associate Justice Tom Clark to step aside. Johnson had known Clark, fellow Texan, for years, and uh, Johnson encouraged him to leave the court. Uh, 
Uh, it's a lifetime appointment, and Associate Justice Clark was not sick. He had not told his family that he was going to step down, uh, but uh, um, uh, but he was encouraged to. And uh, we all know that uh, LBJ um, uh, was a very domineering figure, and uh, he had a lot of admiration for Thurgood Marshall, and he wanted him on the high court. You know, I'd never heard that about um, Tom Clark deciding to step down in, in in a sense before his time. Do do we have any mm-hmm. idea what was what was going on with him beyond Johnson kind of strong arming him? Um, yes, Tom Clark's son was Ramsey Clark, and uh, LBJ wanted to move Ramsey Clark into the position of Attorney General. Uh, but he knew that there was going to be a uh, conflict of interest, uh, so to say, uh, if he had uh, uh, Tom Clark still on the bench. Uh, and so it, it, um, LBJ appealed to Associate Justice Tom Clark from the father-son angle. Now, look, I know you want your boy mm-hmm. to become... Uh, attorney general, but I can't do it as long as you're sitting on the court. And if you step down, actually, um, I think that would be a wonderful thing. Uh, you and your wife will be uh, very proud of him, uh, and it'll be a great thing for uh, for everybody concerned. Um, and it just so happens that uh, Tom Clark and his wife were sent on an around-the-world fact-finding mission uh, on behalf of the White House. And so it was like a tour that they had fun hmm. going on this around-the-world trip. So I want to pull back just a little bit. I mean, throughout the book, you use flashbacks of uh, Marshall's life to, to kind of tell of his rise. So, so to talk a little bit about his childhood. Uh, yes, uh, born in uh, in very segregated uh, Baltimore, Maryland. Um, uh, parents, uh, mother, school teacher, father was a uh, waiter. They really wanted their two sons to go to college um, and to strive. And uh, Marshall went to Lincoln Lincoln University, and uh, when he came out, uh, he went to. Howard University Law School. Uh, he wasn't a serious student when he was at Lincoln. Uh, he played around a lot, but he was one of those kind of students. He could play around and and spend a lot of time having fun and still get straight A's. Mm. Uh, and at Howard uh, at Howard University Law School, uh, he graduated first in his class, um, and uh, he loved the law. Uh, he, uh, uh, when he was 19 years old, uh, in his hometown, uh, he had a, a summer job working in a hat store and, uh, he was on one of the trolley cars and the trolley car driver told him to go to the back where blacks were supposed to stand. And Marshall had these hats Mm -hmm. uh, uh, from the store. And he said, sir, I can't move back there because there are so many people in these hats will fall and and they might get smashed. And uh, and there was an argument and Thurgood was arrested. Uh, He was 19 uh, for not moving to the back of the bus, you might say. And the store owner came down, and uh, he got their good marshal out of jail. But uh, that was a real turning point for Marshall. Um, and so after law school, uh, uh, he worked um, as a fledgling lawyer. And then after two years of being out of law school, uh, he went to New York City and joined the NAACP, uh, and looking around the country, uh, he was traveling a lot, uh, filing state lawsuits, federal lawsuits, 
lawsuits on behalf of blacks uh, uh, in the arenas of voting, uh, jobs, and crime. I mean, just the whole array of um, of, uh, uh, of rights that were being uh, denied blacks. And uh, uh, so Marshall was sort of like this vaudeville figure, always on the road. I mean, he stayed on the road fouling suits in Mississippi, in Louisiana, in Texas. So he came up with this idea. He said, um, what I need to do is, is form a legal unit of the NAACP, and that way we'll be nonpartisan. Uh, we can raise money, and we can foul lawsuits all over this nation uh, because his ultimate goal was to uh, knock asunder, uh, was to destroy Plessy v. Ferguson, which was, you know, which was the law that said separate was equal. And so Marshall established the NAACP Legal Defense and, and Educational Fund and uh, that was his mission. He came up with this mission that I will find top-flight lawyers, black and white lawyers, women and men throughout the country, and uh, they will let me know uh, which cases are important in which lawsuits we should file. And uh, he would let some people uh, uh, do a lot of the advance work, and then he would go in there with his star power. And uh, uh, he had some seminal victories uh, in front of the Supreme Court in uh, 1944, uh, Smith v. Allwright, which, and this is an important case because Smith v. Allwright uh, was the Texas Democratic primary case, and uh, blacks have been forbidden to vote in it. But Marshall won. In the case called Smith v. Allwright, he took it to the Supreme Court and he won. So blacks now could vote in the Democratic primary. One of the people who they voted for in large numbers in 1958 was the young U.S. Senator Lyndon B. Johnson. And Lyndon B. Johnson knew uh, that he would always be in debt to Thurgood Marshall because of that, of that case. Uh, and there was another case, uh, Sweat v. Painter, which Thurgood Marshall uh, sued to integrate the University of Texas Law School. Shelley v. Kramer, a famous housing case. And, of course, uh, his Titanic victory, the 1954 Brown v. Board of Education case. That was a case that made Thurgood Marshall famous. And in 1955, he landed on the cover of Time magazine. But he had done many other famous things before then. Uh, uh, he had survived death threats throughout the South. He kept going back. He was very brave. Um, really, it, it is a remarkable story. And so then one day in 1967, he comes face to face in Senate hearing room 2228, in the U.S. Senate office building, he comes face to face with the most powerful men in the U.S. Senate, and these were the men who hated his guts. And so, uh, in that room, uh, history started to swirl. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Will Haygood, author of Showdown, Thurgood Marshall and the Supreme Court nomination that changed America. So you've got me on the edge of my seat here, um, wanting to know what happened with, with this face-off between this incredibly talented, experienced attorney, obviously entirely qualified to sit on the court, and these men who really wanted to keep him off of it. Yes, yes. Um, it was a, uh, well... <laughs> 
<clears throat> it was a showdown, and that is the title of the book. One of the things that frightened the White House after the first day of hearings, uh, uh, Lyndon Johnson said, uh-oh, Thurgood's in trouble. And Lyndon Johnson uh, went behind the scenes and um, started talking to another African-American attorney, William Coleman, uh, who I interviewed. Uh, he's in his 90s now, sharp, still sharp. Uh, and uh, he was summoned secretly to the White House, and he was told by the White House staff, look, Thurgood might not make it. Uh, these people are really digging in. Uh, um, and he might not make it. Uh, and we need you to tell us that you are willing to become an alternate. Now, William Coleman had been one of the young attorneys who had worked on the Brown uh, school case uh, uh, in 1954. Uh, actually, they had started working on that case as far back as 1951. But William Coleman said, oh, my goodness, um, look, uh, I love Thurgood. Uh, he's the giant. Uh, he should be on the court. He's qualified. Um, uh, but uh, I wouldn't feel right uh, for you to uh, nominate me if he uh, if he doesn't make it. Uh, I want you to keep working at this uh, very hard, and I will do my best as a Republican attorney who happens to be black, I will do my best to, to try to convince senators across the aisle in both parties uh, to support Marshall. Uh, but one of the tricky things is that James Eastland of Mississippi uh, would never tell uh, Marshall over the White House at the end of each day if it was the end of the hearings or not. Uh, they would have to wait until the middle of the night or till early the next morning at 7 o'clock or so to get word from him uh, the hearings will resume uh, this morning at 10 a.m. Report to room 2228. And that was done to keep Marshall and the White House staff nervous. Uh, and uh, uh, Eastland allowed no witnesses uh, for Marshall. Uh, he uh, he just didn't. Uh, and Strom Thurmond uh, started talking about interracial uh, marriages. Uh, and Strom Thurmond uh, knew that Thurgood Marshall's wife uh, was uh, of uh, Filipino descent. And so Strom Thurmond had uh, brought interracial marriage into the hearing room. Uh, this is the same Strom Thurmond who had uh, fathered a child uh, uh, with his uh, uh, black maid, with the family's black maid. Of course, in 1967, uh, no one knew about that. Um, and so the hearings went on, and Marshall, by the third day, was getting very upset, not knowing if he was going to make it. But one of the things that was great was that Phil Hart, Senator from Michigan, who was a uh, staunch liberal, uh, a very passionate man, uh, encouraged blacks everywhere to write letters to the White House uh, and to write letters to these Southern senators. And uh, the Senate was flooded with letters on behalf of um, Marshall. Uh, and uh, it started to work. Not that the Southern senators were ready to change their mind, but uh, uh, it made the White House really dig in. And the turning point was this. Lyndon Johnson, a wonderful president when it came to civil rights, got on the phone and he convinced 20 Southern senators not to vote on the day of the vote in the full Senate. Wow. Now, that's a radical thing because senators go to Washington to vote. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's their job. But LBJ said, look, uh, uh, you know, there's a dam that you want built next year. I might not be able to find the money for it if you don't vote for my man. It was horse trading. It was playing chess of the highest order. And um, those 20 senators... 
didn't leave their house that day. It's just amazing. They did not vote. Um, and, uh, but it's still, I mean, in the end, it was 62 to 11, which seems close, but not uh, from the arcane rules of the Senate. Because if the uh, Southerners had of um, had of stopped the White House at sixty, they would. That meant that they could uh, start a uh, filibuster, uh, which would have uh, talked the Marshall nomination to death. So, so in the end, the Southerners were only a few votes shy from a filibuster. And so it was a nail biter right down to the end, and uh, and riots erupted uh, throughout the South and in uh, Detroit, Michigan, on the last day of the hearings. Um, and so it was all full of drama. And the um, uh, marshal uh, he made it onto the court. Really fascinating story, and and. And Thurgood Marshall is just one of uh, similar subject of biographies you've written. I mean, you've written books on some of those influential, in some cases, misunderstood African-Americans. You have Adam Clayton Powell, Sugar Ray Robinson, and, of course, one of my personal favorites, Sammy Davis Jr. What, what draws you to, to, to such figures? Wonderful question. I, I, I just see uh, such drama uh, in their stories, uh, uh, they each uh, fought hard to convince America uh, that uh, I am as red, white, and blue as anybody. Um, each one of those men, Sugar Ray Robinson, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Congressman Powell, and Thurgood Marshall, uh, they each had to fight in the public eye to be respected. And um, I think that I think that that drove them, uh, that gave them an edge. Uh, it added to their talents. Those are hard journeys, but those kind of journeys uh, make for good storytelling if you're a uh, nonfiction writer. I mean, there's a lot of meat uh, on the bones of each of those lies. And Marshall was the supreme of all of them. He was the supreme. No Marshall, uh, no laws that were changed. Uh, uh, and there's something uh, uh, very magisterial about each of those journeys. Uh, and um, and it's been it's been a a remarkable quartet uh, of stories to tell in these four books. I told a real little story about this uh, White House butler, uh, Eugene Allen, and it's very poignant to me that on the day of uh, Burger Marshall's nomination at the White House, one of the butlers who was working uh, and who served Thurgood Marshall and the other people in the White House happened to be Eugene Allen. And I think about that often. Allen worked in the White House for eight presidents, and he could not have envisioned a Thurgood Marshall when he first started working under Harry Truman. And so now... All these years later, here he is staring at the very man who worked to change uh, his life. By telling these stories that I've told, I really think um, that I've told the story of this country mm. and, and used them as uh, spokeswheels, as the, as the swirling uh, wheel, an uh, entertainer, a politician, a sports figure. In the lawyer. That's the four corners. 
and of course you have the butler, who's kind of the, <laughs> in ways, the uh, the hub <laughs> for, right. for at least a couple of them. And of course, we're referring to your book, The Butler, A Witness to History, which was also the basis for the movie uh, of the same uh, title. Um, yep. I, I, I do want to ask, how did you come across Eugene Allen? Was this during your uh, research uh, for the uh, for the for Showdown? Uh, no, I was uh, I was working on the staff of the Washington Post in in 2008, and I was covering uh, I was covering the campaign of uh, Senator Obama, and I was in North Carolina at one of his rallies. He was down in the polls, and Hillary Clinton uh, Senator Hillary Clinton was still in the race. Uh, he was battling it out with her. Anyway, I was at this rally, and I walked outside. And there were three young ladies, and they were crying. And I asked them if there was anything I could do because they had been inside of the rally. And they said, uh, no, we're crying because our fathers have kicked us out of our homes because we support that candidate inside on stage. And they were three young white ladies, uh, mm-hmm. white, uh, white college students, and, of course, He's black, and um, it was a very emotional story for me uh, listening to them uh, because they were uh, they were so courageous. Uh, their fathers had thrown them out of their homes because they wanted to support this African American candidate. And I said to myself, right then and there, I said Obama's going to win because that's a movement right there. And I just went out on a limb, and and I told my editor, I said, hey. Uh, he's going to win. And my editor said, no, nah, no, he's not. Uh, he's going to make a good showing, but he's not going to win. And I said, no, 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 he's going to win. And I want to find somebody from the pages of history, somebody who worked in the White House before the 1964 Civil Rights Bill was passed. And I want to do a story about their life. And I, and I told my editor, I said it can be somebody who worked in the White House laundry room or in the Rose Garden, or it could be a maid. And the this last words just dripped out of my mouth. I said, or it can be a butler. Hmm. And I don't even know why to this day why I said that. I, 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 I just did. Uh, and I went searching uh, for such a person, and somebody told me there was a man by the name of uh, Eugene Allen who had worked for two presidents, maybe three, at the White House in the 60s. Well, they were wrong. When I when I finally tracked him down, um, he told me his life story, and he had actually worked for eight presidents, eight, from Harry Truman oh to Ronald Reagan. And, wow. And, uh, uh, he had never told his story. He lived in Washington, D.C., on a little quiet street in a humble home with his wife. And uh, I interviewed him uh, on the Friday before the election uh, in 2008. I spent the whole day with he and his wife. They took me, uh, he took me down the basement uh, where he had a room that was like a miniature Smithsonian. It had all of these White House artifacts. He had a Stetson hat from Lyndon Johnson. He had a tie from Mrs. Kennedy that her husband had been wearing the day before he was assassinated. Uh, he had um, five or 6,000 photographs from White House dinners, state dinners, events that he had worked. It was just astonishing. Uh, and I said to him, Mr. Allen, you mean to tell me that nobody has ever told your life story? And uh, he took a step closer to me, and he put his arm on my shoulder, and he said, well, if you think I'm worthy, you'll be the first. And I nearly got a tear in my eye. I mean, this man who had uh, worked at the White House, never missed a day of work in 34 years, the snow or the riots or, or weather, never missed a single day. Uh, he worked at 1600 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, the most powerful address in the world. And he could go back home to his native Virginia in the 50s and couldn't try on a suit in the store because of the color of his skin. And yet he went back to work every day. 
he believed in his country more than his country sometimes believed in him. Uh, and that's the genuine beauty of that story. Uh, so I interviewed him on a Friday. The election is the following Tuesday. But the day before the election, I call him and his wife to say hello and to see how the photo assignment that I had set up went for them. And he said, she's gone. And I said, excuse me? He said, my wife, she's gone. And I said, uh, she's gone where, Mr. Allen? He said, she died last night in her sleep. And uh, it was just, I mean, she died the day before the election. And it was heartbreaking. I mean, they had been married 65 years. And uh, so the story appeared on the front page of the Washington Post. And the uh, 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 transition team of the new administration uh, saw it, and they invited Mr. Allen uh, to the inauguration. He had a VIP seat, and I went with him. And uh, when he saw the first African-American take the oath of office, he leaned over to me and he said, I worked 34 years at the White House, and this is the first inauguration that I've ever been invited to. And so it's uh, it's a nice circle, you might say, you know, uh, sitting there with him and, 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 and watching watching history like that. So he was a figure of history himself. We've been talking with Will Haygood, and I wish we could keep talking all day. These stories are wonderful, but you can find much more in his book, Showdown, which is in stores right now. Will, thank you so much for joining us. This has been fantastic. It was an honor, and thank both of you. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week as we resume our regular broadcast schedule. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes, and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 